love any ministry that has a devotion to the Word, and the Gideons, what an understatement to say that they have a, a devotion to the Word. I was coming back from a flight at DFW a couple years ago and uh, got on one of those little trams that takes you from one terminal to the next, and as I was standing there holding on to the little subway holder thing, uh, there was a guy standing there next to me. I turned and I looked, and he's, got, he's just kind of standing there, and he's got this ball cap on, and on top of the ball cap it says, Gideon's International. And I thought, well, somebody either gave him that hat or he's, from, he's a Gideon. So I said, let me guess, you're a Gideon. He went from asleep to full, full-on alert. And he began to tell me what he was doing. He was about to go. He was there at the airport. He was about to go international to take a billion Bibles to some country that he was going to. And he said, you know, will you please pray for us? And we had literally a delightful conversation in about three minutes. He did most of the talking. <laughs> anyway, so he gets off. But I was going to the next stop, so I, I'm still holding the subway thing. And this other guy gets on. And this other guy gets on. He was not wearing a Gideon's ball cap. In fact, I'm not sure what ball cap he was wearing, but he started swearing and was just this, let's just say, a completely different conversation I had with this guy. And uh, so we both got off together and went different directions. And as I was walking, I thought, you know what? What made the difference between these two guys? And I thought it was the Bible. The Bible. And in my personal life as well, you know, I love coming and hearing my pastor teach. I love hearing good teachers, gifted teachers like we had today. Man, wasn't that magnificent? I think he could read the phone book and it would sound good just because of his accent. But when you combine that with Scripture. But you got gifted teachers on the radio. I mean, we've got great teaching all around us, but there is nothing, nothing that feeds my soul on a regular basis, on a daily basis, like my time in this book. Just being in the Word changes my life. And it continues to change my life. It's not a one-and-done deal. It is a continual thing. So let me just urge you, not only to do the first part of the Great Commission, which is baptizing and sharing Gideon Bibles everywhere, but also using that Word in your daily life, as Christ said, that you may uh, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And everything is the whole book. There's, that's a lifetime assignment, a lifetime assignment. If you've ever worked in corporate America, you're probably familiar with the comic strip Dilbert. It's almost worth just working in corporate America so that you can appreciate the subtle sort of jabs that Dilbert gives to corporate America. And it basically is poking fun at incompetent CEOs and the brilliant people under them that have to live with them. And uh, there's one that I thought was really great. You've got uh, uh, the, the CEO, and then you've got Dilbert, who's sort of the, the hero of the thing. He's this engineer who always knows more than the CEO. And so they're sitting at this table amongst others, and they're in this meeting. And the CEO says this. We're hiring a director of change management to help employees embrace strategic changes. And then Dilbert turns to the CEO and says, or we could come up with strategies that make sense. Then employees would embrace change. And the CEO turns to Dilbert and says, 
That sounds harder. <laughs> We've all heard the joke, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change, exactly. <laughs> well, here's one maybe you haven't heard so much, and I love this one. How many mystery writers does it take to change a light bulb? Two, one to screw it in most of the way and another to give it a surprising twist at the end. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. And I love that because that's what God does as he crafts the chapters of our lives. There's the most of it, which is sort of predictable, which we can sort of assume. But then there's those surprising twists that only God can do, that only God can bring about in our lives. One time the scribes and Pharisees were talking with Jesus and they asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And because they didn't wash their hands when they ate bread. And Jesus said to them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, we love comfort. We love our tradition. Uh, I, and, and I sort of like it when we have guest speakers because it sort of causes unrest amongst our uh, tradition. Not that there's anything wrong with tradition, but I don't know if you noticed, we could set our watch by the, the order of events in our church. In fact, at the end of, oh, this is maybe a little cynical, but the end of uh, Easter last week after Chuck said his, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen, and then uh, I almost turned and pointed at the organ because that's exactly what happens every time after that third he is risen. Every year that happens. Just once I'd love to hear a trumpet or something different. We love our tradition, and tradition is good. But tradition, as Jesus, when Jesus says that we break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition, that's not good. God is committed to initiating change in our lives, and sometimes he gives that little surprising twist that causes that to happen. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 45 as we get back into our story of Joseph, the life of Joseph. Talk about surprising twists. You couldn't write a story like this if it wasn't true. Joseph's story is a story of change that God has initiated. The change that we welcome is the change that we initiate, not the change that God initiates. We love change, like you know, a job transfer that we initiate or a haircut you know, that is our decision. We welcome change because we're in control. You know, changing a baby's diaper, this is change we welcome. But we also welcome the change that we expect, like seasons, like holidays, because, again, it gives us a measure of control. Even though we're not deciding it, at least we can anticipate it, and so it's okay. What we don't like, the change that we don't like in life, is the change that's forced upon us or that's surprised, that surprises us. This is how God often operates. So the story of Joseph, boy, we've come a long way in it, so I won't give the whole story again. But you'll remember Joseph's life, 
Brothers hated him because he was the favorite son. God gave Joseph dreams, or really prophecies, that he would rule over the family one day, and then all of a sudden, there's a twist. The, the brothers sell him into slavery, and now Joseph is 20-some years in, uh, as a slave in Egypt, and then also began ruling Egypt by a wonderful set of circumstances that only God could bring about, including a famine. And the famine swept the whole earth, and yet there was food in Egypt, and Joseph is now head over all the, the program of distributing this food. And you remember how his brothers came, and he finally revealed himself to his brothers after several tests that proved that they had actually changed, and they weren't the rascals that they were years back. Well, last time we were together, we saw that Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. He, for, he tells them that he has forgiven the evil that they've done, and he says to go quickly back to Canaan and get the family, get their father, and bring the father and the family to Egypt because there is still famine to come. The famine's only been going two years. There's five more years of famine. And so Joseph says, bring everybody to Egypt and I'll take care of you. So Genesis 45, I think we left off down at verse 16. So Genesis 45, verse 16 is where we'll begin. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. Isn't it amazing how Joseph, for years, even when he's had the power now to connect with his father, doesn't. He's waited on God to bring about the circumstances at the right time. But as soon as he reconciled with his brothers, as soon as the circumstances were right, Joseph wasted no time in going and getting his father and bringing his father to Egypt. It's wonderful how the Lord has so worked in Joseph's life to give him this ability to, to wait and to not use his power for his own benefit, but to wait on God to bring about it in his time. Interesting, verse 20, you might have a marginal reading like I do. Uh, verse 20 here says, do not concern yourself with your goods. My marginal reading says, uh, let not your eye look with regret on your vessels which isn't terribly helpful. The uh, King James Version, for, for once, says it in a way that's kind of nice. It says, uh, don't let your, your eye regret your stuff. The American Standard Version also calls it stuff. Here's uh, Darby's translation. Darby says, and let not your eye regret your stuff, for all the good of the land of Egypt shall be yours. How many people's spiritual lives are struggling because 
of their stuff. They don't want to grow in the next step because they're concerned about their stuff. Interesting. Even when we're told something is better is coming, we will cling to the past. And the brothers are told, you know what? Forget your stuff, all your vessels. You get, you get the best of Egypt waiting for you. Leave all that behind. So the brothers depart for Canaan. And look at what Joseph reminds them in verse 24. Interesting statement. He says, so he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. This is a brother who knows his brothers. <laughs> it's been 22 years, and he still knows his brothers. These parting words are more than just a reminder to be nice. You know, like your mom would always tell you with you and your siblings, be nice. It's, it was more than just be nice. But rather, Joseph realized that the ride home is going to give them 12 days of sitting in the saddle with one another and to mull over the inevitable conversation that they faced in Hebron when they got back to Daddy Jacob. Remember, they had told Jacob 22 years earlier, look, here's this garment. Uh, see if this is your son's garment. They had given the impression that Joseph was dead. And so now, all of a sudden, they're coming back with total opposite news. It's going to be confession time. The brothers know this. The brothers would be anticipating this. And what happens when you've got confession that you've got to do? When you're in a tight situation and conviction comes upon you, how do we normally react as people? When you feel conviction, all of a sudden, it, your index finger sticks out. And you want to point somewhere else other than at yourself. Uh, those of you who are married know this exactly. It's not your fault, right? This is what Joseph anticipates. Of course, the good news is going to come easy enough. Joseph's still alive. Yay! We're going to survive the famine. Yay! Oh, and we lied to you 22 years ago about Joseph. This is inevitable. And, and they can't just go and say, what do you know, Joseph's alive, big surprise for all of us. No, because they're going down there and Joseph is going to be able to tell Jacob the truth. The truth is inevitable. They're going to have to face it. And they got 12 days to sit it over, think it over. So Joseph's telling them, don't argue. Don't argue about this. Remember, Reuben had tried to rescue Joseph. Judah had suggested selling him instead of killing him. Joseph knows his brothers, and so he urged them to keep peace with each other as they rode home. So Jacob also, he can do the math. The father Jacob, he knows how long it takes to get there, how long it takes to get back, knew about when to expect him, probably had some you know, watch person to, to watch for them to see if they were coming. And they began to show up, and it wasn't just you know, the brothers, but it's the brothers plus all this stuff, all this amazing riches of Egypt. You've got donkeys full of all these riches, far more than they went down to purchase. So Joseph wasn't just being generous when he sent all this you know, stuff back with his brothers. This was proof that Joseph is ruling Egypt. They couldn't have bought all this. So this is proof that something had happened. But before Jacob could ask about all the wagons, his sons spoke first, 
verse 25, these are words Jacob never would have expected. Verse 25 says, Then they went up from Egypt, came down to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and indeed is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Typical Jacob. Typical Jacob. Struggled to believe it. And it took basically proof in his face to make it happen. He was stunned. The marginal reading says his heart grew numb. It's from a Hebrew word that basically means limp or useless. Just imagine him just, he's so stunned he's just sort of staring with his mouth open. He can't believe what he's hearing. Last time his uh, Jacob's sons came and talked about Joseph, they had used this fake, you know, this coat of many colors dipped in fake, uh, not Joseph's blood, but a goat's blood, and as proof that Joseph was dead. But they didn't refer to him as Joseph, remember. Twenty-two years earlier, they said, examine this to see if it is your sons. He, they couldn't even say his name. But now they come back, not with proof that he's dead, but with proof that he's alive, and they say Joseph. They actually use his name. Very different brothers this time around. All right, here's a couple of corny jokes. Some of you look like you need a couple of corny jokes. <clears throat> Who was the straightest man in the Bible? Joseph. Pharaoh made a ruler out of him. <laughs> Mike Saul liked it, at least. I see him smiling. Okay, here's a second one. Where, <laughs> where is tennis mentioned in the Bible? when Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. I told you they're corny, but I also told you that you needed it. Some, some of you are kind of slumping. Okay, so back to the story. So again, this is the tough part. This is the tough part. They had to explain. Their explanation of Joseph being alive also had to include a confession. Moses doesn't record it, but we know that this is the moment it happened because they had to begin explaining why all this went down. And uh, we know that it happened here. In verse 27, we see Jacob's response. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Notice how Jacob is referred to here. First of all, as Jacob, then as Israel. Interesting change. When he is in the doldrums, when he's down, when he's doubting, he is referred to as Jacob. But then verse 28, then Israel said, it is enough, my son is still alive. It's not one for one, but a lot of times in the, in the narrative of Jacob's life, you'll see this. When he is not really walking in faith, he's referred to as Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber, which is what his name means. And when he is walking with God, or when he, when he has glimpses or moments of faith, he's referred to as Israel, he who strives with God. And that's what we see here in verse 28. Um, chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices 
to the God of his father Isaac. They waste no time here. They immediately set out, and they head on their way to Egypt. If you're familiar with the, uh, the geography of Israel, there is a highway, or was a highway. Actually, it still is the highway today, major highway, north-south, along the hill country is called, uh, in the scriptures, we refer to this highway as the way of the patriarchs. I don't think it's actually referred to as that in the scriptures, but that's what we refer to it as because it is the major road that the patriarchs walked all up and down. It uh, started up north at Shechem and made its way down along the hill country, the ridge of the hill country, and it dead-ended at Beersheba. Beersheba was sort of the last stop in Israel before you'd head out into the desert, into the wilderness area. In fact, Beersheba was so much considered sort of the last stop that it was the proverbial uh, ending. Like in America, we say from sea to shining sea. In Israel, you would say from Dan to Beersheba. It was the, the geographical markers from north to south. Beersheba was the south, as it were. It's like when you leave Beersheba, you are leaving the land, the promised land. And so they get there, and Beersheba is more than simply this. You may remember in Jacob's life that Jacob was raised at Beersheba. This is where he and his brother Esau were raised by Isaac and Rebekah. This is where, decades earlier, Jacob saw his mother, Rebekah, for the last time when she convinced him to run from Esau, and then Jacob never saw his mom again. Beersheba was full of memories of his childhood, of the deception of Esau, of uh, memories, every little place. You know, when you go back to your hometown or place where you grow up, things that you didn't remember, you remember. Things that you didn't remember that you remember, you remember when you get there. Every little corner has a memory. I mean, every spot you can remember something that happened. This was Jacob and Beersheba. And it was also, throughout the scriptures, Beersheba became a place of spiritual, a departure for spiritual journeys. Abraham, Hagar, uh, Jacob, of course, and even Elijah later in the scripture. This is a place where they had a significant encounter with God. We're told that, we won't turn back there, but 20 chapters earlier, Isaac also had a vision when he came to Beersheba. And here we have Jacob having a vision at Beersheba. If we were to turn, you don't, don't turn there, but if we were to turn to uh, chapter 28, I think it's verse 10, this is the account when Jacob actually left Beersheba to flee from Esau. It says that Jacob left Beersheba and then went north along that way of the patriarchs and stopped at Bethel and had a vision. So as Jacob was leaving the land to go to Haran and ultimately to find a, a wife, he ended up with four wives and much more than he anticipated. But he had a vision as he was leaving the land, departing from Beersheba. Now, once again, he is leaving the land, going the other direction now, departing from Beersheba, and guess what? God gives him a vision. Verse 2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. 
What a magnificent promise. To hear God himself affirm Joseph is alive. In fact, Joseph is going to be there when you die. What a comfort. And evidently, Jacob needed this comfort because God tells Jacob, don't be afraid to go. Why would we ever have to be told that? Because he was afraid to go. He was afraid. Now we think, well, Jacob, you should have more faith than that. Wait a minute. How old is this old guy? He's old. He's about to tell Pharaoh that he is like 120-something. Where does he say it? I didn't look ahead here. Uh, 47.9, he says, the years of my sojourning are 130. So Jacob's 130 at this point, and he has lived a long time where he is. How many of you would love the Lord to say, you know what, leave it all, forget your stuff, and head to Egypt? Anybody want to sign up for that? Nobody wants to sign up for that. Nobody does. It's like when Joseph went to Egypt. He had to be tied and taken. It was, it's like Jacob now. He has to be compelled to go. When God brings those surprising twists in our lives, in the chapters of our lives, it's not a vote. He doesn't ask us to fill in a checkbox, yes or no, I would like to obey your will. Sometimes he ties us and takes us. He compels us to go, but with circumstances that we would not otherwise obey. We would stay in our little cubbyhole for the rest of our lives, trying to stay safe from the world, and we would never experience the power of God. Now, by now, of course, Jacob knows that the brothers has, have betrayed Joseph. God revealed that uh, the move to Egypt is, is part of God's sovereign plan, and he lays out this, and he tells Jacob, look, I've got a plan for you going to Egypt. In fact, he makes promises to Jacob. And there's at least four of them. There may be more, but there are at least four here in these verses. And I'd like, by way of application, for us to use these four promises as principles that are also promises to us, because they are. We find them abundantly supported elsewhere in the Scripture. So look back at verse 3, and let's look at these four truths that when we are struggling, when we are afraid to follow God, he gives us comfort. We need comfort when we're afraid to follow. First of all, verse 3, the Lord says, I am God. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but when we're afraid, we need to hear that. When we're afraid to follow God into the next chapter of our lives, we need to hear that he is God, that he is in control, that he is sovereign, over our lives and over these world events. The famine is under God's control. The brothers' lives changing, God's control. Uh, Jacob changing under God's control. God is sovereign. He, He has initiated this change. He is in control. And the same is true of you and me. He is God, not us. He is in control. He is initiating this change for a purpose. The times that we struggle to follow God begin when we forget He is God. Second, He says, do not be afraid to go. Do not be afraid to go. God wouldn't have said this if Jacob didn't need to hear it. And He, needs to, he tells us that same thing. 
Uh, We've heard this many times, but boy, it's helpful to hear it again, that the number one command in the scripture is what? Do not be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid to follow the Lord. It's fearful to step out in faith into the unknown. Now, in hindsight, we can look back in our lives and see those times that we thought that we were afraid and that it wasn't going to go well. Turns out it went okay. God was with us. What do you know? The same is true with our future. So first he says, I am God. Second, he says, do not be afraid to go. And third, this is wonderful, he says, I will make you a great nation there. I will make you a great nation there. This is this brings up the reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. God is reiterating to Jacob, you know that promise I made to Abraham? It's going to happen there, not here. In fact, if Jacob was thinking, this would also bring to back bring back to mind God's words to Abraham in Genesis 15 where he said God said to Abraham, uh, the generations that follow you will sojourn in a foreign land for 400 years, but then they'll return after, I think, the third generation or fourth generation. And it's a promise that God made to Abraham, that God says, quotes his word now to Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation there. God's promises are what we cling to in moments of change fear. Another great reason to be in the word of God on a daily basis because we're afraid. We live uh, bent toward fear, bent to anxiety because we want to be in control, and yet we live in a life that we can't control. We can't control our health, though we can affect it. Ultimately, we can control it. Things happen. Same with uh, safety on the road. I mean, think of all the things that we're anxious about. Finances, the stock market. I mean, everything is out of our control. And we can really get fearful if we mull over that. God says, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a great nation there. And in your life, you may be facing a new season. Um, I don't even have to fill in the blank. You can fill in the blank. The future that you're about to walk into is something that is fearful for you because it's unknown. But God told Jacob, I will make you a great nation there. It's where I want to take you. It's where I want to bless you. So don't stay here. Don't stay here. Go where I'm leading you because that's where I want to bless you. My purposes for you are there, not here. And then finally, and isn't this beautiful, verse 4, he says, I will go with you. I will go with you. I'm not just pointing the way and saying, there it is, see you at the rapture. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. How comforting. And no details, no specifics, just go, and I'm going with you. So if you're fearful of following God, this departure from Beersheba may be exactly what you needed to hear today, that God is going to go with you. Don't be afraid. And by principle, these promises are all true for us as well, every one of them. Now, verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. 
They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Uh, We won't read what's coming next because uh, it's not terribly relevant to us, but it is relevant to the certainly the generations that would follow. But basically, we're told all of the people who went, 70 persons in all. In fact, if you look down at verse 27, 46, 27, toward the end of that verse, it says, all the persons of Jacob, of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70, were 70. Now, keep your finger here in Genesis 46. We'll be right back to it. But turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. There's a significant couple of verses here that give us some context as to the time of year. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 says this. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So just as God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to sojourn for 400 years, Exodus tells us specifically it's 430 years, and we're told that it was to the very day. And we know when this very day was in Exodus 12, because we know the Passover was in March. So if that's true, back up 430 years in March, and we're back to Genesis 46. So that this was March. This was spring. This was a great time to travel. In fact, I was in Egypt just last March, just last month, and it was wonderful, wonderful weather. Is not, I would not want to be there in August. I don't even want to be in Texas in August, but I live here. It's a wonderful time. So this is March. It was very pleasant. God had not only provided uh, the abundance of Egypt, but he had provided a wonderful time of year to get there for the old man, Jacob. And as the journey neared its end, Judah, we're told, rode on ahead, verse 29, to uh, let Joseph know, or verse 28, let Joseph know they were coming. It says, now he sent Judah before them, before him to Joseph to point the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Man, you imagine how fast that horse was running. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Wonderful, wonderful reunion. I love it that Joseph is such a tender guy. You ever notice how many times Joseph cries in this, in this story? I mean, all throughout these chapters, all throughout these weeks that we've looked, Joseph cries a lot. And it's kind of like Taylor Gardner. Has anybody ever had a conversation with Taylor that he hasn't cried. Such a tender man, just like Jesus. Jesus, I think, was tender like that. And Joseph was like that, wasn't he? Such a sensitive guy. I read that the average man, the average man, and this is sort of a a slight on us as men, we cry once a month. 
My daughter tells me she cries at least once a day. I just, you know, as a really sensitive father, I said, why? (laughs) Guess how that went. She started crying. But Joseph's a sensitive guy. And he and his father at this wonderful reunion are just in tears over the goodness of God. Just wonderful. God is able to do wonderful things. Imagine Joseph's, uh, Jacob's mindset, holding his son he thought he had lost. We're going to see later as, uh, we, as Joseph presents Joseph's sons to Jacob, that Jacob says, I never thought I'd see you again, and yet here I am seeing your sons. This is the goodness of God. This is how God works in our lives. Think about the times in your life where, where it's, it's so much easier to just be negative, because if we're negative, we won't be disappointed. But if we try to think positive, what happens? We get disappointed. Disappointing is no fun. So we just live negative. That way we think, yep, that's what I thought. And yet God often shows up to pour water on our negativity, doesn't he? Sometimes he will bless us in ways that are so far beyond what we would imagine that we can only attribute it to the grace of God. He's, he can do it. He can do it. Now, it doesn't happen every day. If it happened every day, it'd be kind of blasé. No big deal. Hey, great, you know, another million dollars in the bank account. Oh, ho-hum. No. God selects these times in our lives when we need the blessing in such a way that we'll never forget it. Jacob and Joseph never forgot this. Of course they didn't. And here it is in the scriptures, significant enough for us to remember as well. We're told in Ephesians that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. It's not just God gives us what we ask. He gives us beyond what we ask or think. God does this. Oh, and by the way, remember Joseph's dreams 22 years ago? Fulfilled. It's been 22 years, and now Joseph also sees the, the closed loop of God's promise in his life. Fulfilled. Finally, God's revelations to Joseph had come true. So God's committed to bringing change into your life. It's that big theological word called sanctification, where God takes us from where we are to what he wants us to be. Or like we heard in the service earlier, he takes us from being fishermen to making us fishers of men. This is his plan, that we are, we don't stay who we are. There's the the wonderful statement that God loves us as we are, but he also loves us enough not to leave us that way. He brings us along and makes us like Jesus Christ. Paul said to the the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And this is what he does in our lives. We are transformed into the image of Christ day by day. We're told that he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are designed for change. Did you know that our bodies... Does anybody have any idea how many atoms are in our body? Somebody might know in this astute group. I didn't know before I read. It's 10 to the 28th power. You think, well, what's that? 
Well, for perspective, the number of stars in the universe, as far as we can estimate, is 10 to the 20th. Our bodies, the number of atoms, 10 to the 28th. You got more atoms in your body than stars in the universe. And here's the amazing fact. 90% of our atoms are replaced annually. And this sort of shows God's plan for the perpetual eternity of his original creation. But also, I always wonder, well, if my atoms are replaced, why aren't they replaced with new ones? Like a young man. I'm getting older with these new atoms. How does that work? It's got to be the fall. It's got to be the fall. But the same is also true of us spiritually. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're going one way or the other. In every breath we take, we're going one way or the other. And we choose if we're going to grow spiritually by what we choose to dwell on. It's really that simple. It's that simple, but it's also that hard. The renewal of our mind. When God gave Jacob this vision to go to Egypt, no details, no specifics, and he doesn't give us that either. Often, he just, we just read it in the Word and we realize, like Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows us the next step. It doesn't show us the whole journey. It's like the headlights in front of your car. The headlights in front of the car aren't high beams. They're low beams. Maybe we should say the headlights in front of our lives are not high beams. They're low beams. We don't see the distance. We see what's right in front of us. But you know what? That's enough. We can go 70 miles an hour with those headlights because all we see is what we, what's right in front of us, and it's enough. It's the same with God's work in our lives. His word shows us what's next. And then after that, what's next? And then after that, what's next? If we saw the whole journey, we would never leave. We would never commit to following God. So he gives us those surprising twists, those, those exits from the highway that we never would have imagined. In fact, he gives us hard left turns so fast it leaves our face smashed against the windshield and just says, hang on, I'm driving. But I love these promises that he gave to Jacob. Again, these are his promises to us. I'm God, don't be afraid to go. I will make you great there. I will go with you. Um, just a few weeks ago, I guess it was maybe, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, I was discouraged. I mean, I'm kind of like my daughter cries every day. I'm discouraged every day. I, like, really have to be in the Word on a regular basis or despair washes over me. Now, I know. I've brushed my teeth. I'm wearing a tie. I look all holy and spiritual. But I'm telling you, I struggle just like you do. And sometimes it's deep. And there was one morning I woke up. Uh, I'm going to pull a Taylor Gardner on you here. One morning I woke up like three or four weeks ago. And my routine is, I mean, I can walk around in our house like a mole with all the lights off, and I get up so early. My routine is I go over to the coffee pot, and it's already on, waiting for me, and I push the little button. And while I'm waiting for it, while it's dripping, I'm waiting for it, in the 60 seconds that my coffee was pouring, I just prayed. And I just said, Lord, please don't abandon me. And uh, immediately, this has like only happened like five times in my life, but it was like electricity in my head. 
I heard the scripture that said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, it was like the light went on in the kitchen. It was a charismatic moment. It was amazing. And it wasn't like God talking to me, but God talked to me through the scripture. It was the scripture talking to me in a moment that I needed it. He's never going to forsake us. This is why it's so important to be in the Word, because otherwise you're going to live fearful. You're going to live in despair, because the world proves to us the power of Satan. The Word proves to us the power of God, and we need to be in it on a daily basis. Oh, that was such a great moment. I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise from Christ. God's calling some of you to change, to trust him into this next season. And the thing is, you know it, but you hesitate. You're like Jacob in Beersheba, fearful. And God is telling you through the scriptures, he's telling you, uh, don't be afraid. Where I want to take you is where I want to bless you. Don't be afraid. Follow me. Have you ever played tug of war? You know, back when you were young. I'm in a real tug of war. Like you got a rope that's about, you know, this big around where you can hardly hold it. And there's like 10 people on this side, 10 people on this side, and you got that little ribbon in the middle. And you kind of judge on which side you want to be on. You're looking to see who's going to be the, the stronger. Anyway, you get on there, you get on there, and they say, ready, set, go. And all of a sudden, you don't move. You're pulling and pulling and pulling, and it feels like you've got your hands on a Mack truck. And if you get a little bit of, a little bit of momentum, you think, ah, oh, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. But, boy, when it starts going the other way, it is a gut-wrenching feeling. It's like I, I am not in control. As hard as you pull, you can't win. Uh, that's what it's like in our walk with God. When we're tug-of-warring against him, have you ever tried to tug-of-war in your spiritual life? God wins in that battle. He can pull harder than you. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful metaphor. You're pulling as hard as you can, but you still just keep going God's direction. What grace. What grace that he allows us to struggle with him and yet to come on the good side of it, just like he did with all these brothers, just like he did with Jacob. Let's pray. Father, these words that... You told Jacob that night in Beersheba are words we need to hear as well. I am God. Do not be afraid to go. I will make you great there. I will be with you. I will go with you. We're grateful for these promises also by principle to us because we need them. We need to hear your truth in these days when the news and the stock market and our families, and our health, and, and, and. The list goes on of reasons that cause us to doubt your goodness. Thank you for this wonderful book that we have accessible to us on a daily basis in which the promises of your word can just pour forth into our fearful hearts that we can be strengthened to trust you, to love you, to obey you when the world is pulling in the other direction. Lord, we're grateful for these words, these scriptures, the story of Joseph's life and of Jacob's life and of our lives. Thank you for the surprising twists that you continue to insert that cause us to grow. We'll trust you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you, Wayne. I think, um, like most of you, uh, I've, I've certainly heard lots of teaching on Joseph. It's a very popular topic, but uh, I believe this was the best. It's, thank you very much for that blessing. We're not. Uh, <laughs> so come back next week, and uh, until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.